Awesome. Hey guys. I brought up a lot of uh, a lot of luggage or baggage, if you will. Let's just trying to get myself situated. Here we go. All right. Hey, thanks for having me, you guys. This is a uh, this is a real honor. I, I I feel very privileged to have the chance to come and to to speak, and uh, I'm excited. So I I can remember it very vividly. It was my senior year of college, and I had just graduated, and I had been given a position, a leadership position, at Camp Timberline as an aquatics coordinator. And I was pumped for it. My job for the whole summer was going to be overseeing some summer staff and running our water ski program and overseeing the lake at the camp. And if you've been to Camp Timberline and you're wondering, what the heck happened to the water ski program? Another story, another day. Uh, it's a good story. Um, so I, I got given this job, and there was one prerequisite, and the prerequisite was to be lifeguard certified. And so I thought, yeah, no big deal. Uh, I'll just look up to see when the, the next available class is. And so I went on the Red Cross. There was one a couple weeks out. I signed up, put it on the calendar, kind of forgot about it. And the night before the class, I saw the calendar, and I was like, oh, oh no, it's, that's tomorrow. So I dug through my dresser, and I found my Abercrombie and Fitch beach shorts, flower print with cargo pockets, shoved them into my backpack, grabbed a towel, shoved that in my backpack, packed a lunch, I was set. Pulled up to the pool, the following morning, walked into the lobby. The instructor was there, and she said, hey, we're going to meet at the north end of the lanes in 10 minutes. Go get changed up, and, and we'll get started. So I went into the, the locker room, and one thing that hadn't occurred to me until the moment I walked into the locker room was the minimum age of becoming a lifeguard was 14. Here I was, almost 22. I was the only guy in the locker room with any hair on my chest, and the other thing I quickly noticed as people were getting changed was I was the only one not wearing a Speedo. And typically, you would not be the one uncomfortable, that being the case, but being that I was the only one in a flower print Abercrombie & Fitch swimsuit, I felt a little awkward. They all got changed. They started heading out and went out to the pool. I followed them, and as I was following them, I noticed another thing that was a bit different Everybody else had goggles on their head. I had never owned swim goggles. So I followed everybody to the north end of the lanes, and we got there, and the instructor gathered everybody up, and she said, okay, you're going you're gonna to swim your 500 freestyle, and <laughs> what do you like? Yeah. Okay. So you're going to swim your 500 freestyle. She said, don't touch the edges, don't touch the bottom, or you're disqualified. You, you may begin whenever you're ready. These 14-year-old kids began diving into four feet of water, which I was always told was extremely dangerous. <laughs> they all jumped in. I was the last one on what I learned later was called the deck. <laughs> I, I didn't know how to dive into four feet of water, so I jumped in like a kid on vacation <laughs> and began swimming the best stroke that I knew how, which was kind of a modified doggy paddle. I made it down and back. And I was on my way down for a, for a second lap. Mind you, I had no idea how many I had to do to make 500. <laughs> I just figured that if I just kept swam long enough, as soon as everybody started getting out, I would get out too. Well, I'm on my way back 
the second time, and I'm, I'm beginning to sink. And my modified doggy paddle is no longer doing the trick, and my head is barely above water, and I hear the whistle blow. And so I turn and look, and the instructor gives me one of these. So I turn around, trying to keep my head above water, and she said, if you touch the bottom of the pool or the edge, you're disqualified. So I get over towards the edge, and it's four feet of water, and so I'm doing this awkward, <laughs> I'm 6'2". I'm doing this awkward, like, water treading, trying to not touch the bottom. She goes, Dan, grab the edge. <laughs> okay, so I grab the edge. She goes, when's the last time you swam laps? I said, well, actually, I've never swam a lap. That was my first one right there. <laughs> she goes, why don't you hop out? And uh, so I hopped out, and, and she, she said, Dan, I don't, I don't know how to say this nicely, but um, you're going to need to learn how to swim <laughs> before <laughs> you come to lifeguard training. The crazy thing is, you guys, I had no idea that I was walking into a situation where I would be completely humiliated. And so by that time, all of these 14-year-old kids had got out of the pool, and they're all watching me talk to the instructor. My Abercrombie shorts are draining out of the pockets. <laughs> they gave me two holes at the bottom so that it would drain. And she said, why don't you go find some swim lessons, and you can come back when you're ready. I grabbed my towel, threw it over my shoulder, and I kid you not, this was like the worst walk of shame of my life up to this point. I walked to the locker room, I grabbed my flip phone, that tells you how old I am, called the director of the camp, and I said, I can't do it. I can't do it. I was humiliated, I was later humbled, and there is a difference. And I wanted to share that story because I thought it would be a great primer for our talk number three of your four-part series called Jesus Calls. Tonight we're going to talk about how Jesus calls us to humility. And unlike many of the other character traits or actions that Jesus calls us to, humility actually holds the key to our relationship with God. There are a ton of of verses in the Bible on humility. And preparing for this talk, I found out over 900 references in the Bible about humbleness and humility. So I felt like a kid with ADD in one of those vortex machines where the money's flying around, <laughs> trying to like grab something. Like, where do I land? There was some verses that I noticed that were repeating themselves, and I later found that they were referencing a particular verse. And so James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5, both reference Proverbs 3.34, and a similar idea was also mentioned in a bunch of other verses, but these three basically said the same words, and it's this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I, I realize this is a, a really bold verse, we don't often like to talk about the idea of God opposing us, although I have to imagine thinking back to my scenario that he was sitting up there just having a good old chuckle, um, just knowing what he was ultimately doing in my heart and just watching me squirm and drown. This verse, as, as short as it is, um, actually explains most of why Jesus had to come and why he taught and lived the way that he did. So what I'd like to do tonight, 
to help us better understand Jesus' call in our life to live in humility, I want to first kind of talk about what humility is, and then we'll kind of touch on some of the ways that Jesus taught and demonstrated it, and then we'll end tonight by really talking about how, how do we then live in it? How do we actually follow the call to, to follow him in humility? I think the best way for us to, or one of the best ways for us to understand humility is to begin by talking about what it's not, its antithesis, and that's pride. So what is pride? Just a few weeks ago, my four-year-old son, Mawson, was in the living room, and I was sitting at the, the island in the kitchen, and he said, Dad, you want to build a tower of blocks? I didn't really want to, but I was like, absolutely, man. Let's do it. And so I, I told him, well, go, go get the blocks. Let's go. Let's build this tower. And the blocks were on the, on the edge of the living room, and so he walks over, and the blocks were in a big wooden kind of box. And so he goes over and grabs the two handles and doesn't move it an inch. And I looked at him like, you need me to grab them, buddy? He's like, yeah, yeah, okay. So I walk over, I grab the, bo the blocks, and I bring them in the middle of the living room, and I set them down, and we, we dump them out, and he begins doing what he always does when we begin to build is he grabs like the skinniest, roundest pieces and begins to try to stack them on the carpet, which is not going to get anywhere. So I'm like, buddy, buddy, no, no, let's get a foundation. We got to have a strong foundation if we're going to build this tall tower. Okay, yeah, yeah, foundation. Okay, so we get the, the flat blocks and we're kind of laying out the foundation. All right, now let's, let's do these next kind of fat, chunky ones and they're going to hold up the layer above that. Okay, yeah. And so we do that and then all of a sudden he tries to put like the triangle piece on top. I'm like, no, bud, bud, we can't stack on top of that. Not that not that one yet. Okay, okay, yeah. And so why don't you grab the, the medium ones? Okay, yeah. And he grabs them, and we keep, we keep building, and every step of the way he tries to put the triangle piece on it. It's not time yet, man. It's not time. And so finally we get this, this tower all the way, and I'm guiding him every step of the way, and, and we get the tower, like, it had to have been four feet. It was about as tall as he was. And finally I'm, I turn him like, it's time for that piece, bud. And he, and he sets it on. And he's now old enough to where he doesn't like to knock it down anymore. He likes to keep it up for a little bit and look at it. And so he leaves it up, and about 20 minutes later, my wife comes in and walks into the kitchen, and he runs over and goes, Mom, Mom, look what I built all by myself. <laughs> I was sitting at the island, and I, my head peeks up, and I had a moment of like, I want to just call him out on it. But internally, I'm like, buddy, you couldn't even pick up the box. <laughs> like, built it all by yourself. And we, we laugh because it's like kids' pride is so easy to see. They just, they just wear it every single day. They were born with it, and they wear it. And it's obvious. It's not so obvious when we get a little bit older, especially if we spend some time in church, because we learn how to hide it. We learn how to mask it. We learn how to pretend like it doesn't exist. Ultimately, what's going on is self-glorification. See, we have this tendency to place ourselves on podiums that were constructed by the grace of God, and then we have the audacity to stand there and say, look at me. I got up here all by myself. If you've grown up in the church or been around, I don't know, youth group or anything, you, there was this analogy going around for a long time that this metaphor that we would use for teaching, and I used it all the time, and I loved it. It's a good one. And it's this idea that we're a light bulb created perfectly in God's image, 
but disconnected from the source, it's just a bulb. Connected to the source, and it can light up a room, shine the light of Christ throughout the world. It's brilliant. I love it. I'll still use it. I want to take that analogy, and we are the bulb. And when we plug into the source, we can shine. And, and so a bulb walks into a bar <laughs> on a Friday night. And his friends ask him, how'd that talk go? And the bulb says, man, I lit that place up. <laughs> Did you, though? You're just a bulb. Right? I love that analogy. I do that all the time. In case you didn't pick up on that, that was me. Did you light that place up? Not by yourself. But that's the platform we do. That, that's the platform that we use. That, that's what we do all the time. God's grace gives us this platform, and they're like, look at me. Look at me. This isn't new to our generation. This has been happening ever since sin entered the picture in the Garden of Eden. Ever since that point, mankind has been attempting to really cut God out of the picture. One of the stories that illustrates this extremely well is in Genesis 11. And I wanted to read from my favorite version of the Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, puts the message to shame. So this is in Genesis 11. It says, Now Noah and his family lived in the land, and his children had children, and those children had more children, and then those children had even more. And well, you get the picture. And so there was lots of people on the earth once more. Now, back then, everyone spoke exactly the same language, so you didn't need to learn Swahili or Japanese or anything because you could say hello to anyone, and they knew what you meant. Well, one day, everyone was talking, and they came up with an idea. Let's build ourselves a beautiful city to live in. It can be our home, and we'll be safe forever and ever. Then they had another idea. And let's build a really tall tower to reach up to heaven. There's the tower. So now you'll know why I'm holding it sideways. Yes, they said. We'll say, look at us up here. And everyone will look at us. And we'll look down on them. And then we'll know we're something. We'll be like God. We'll be famous and safe and happy. And everything will be all right. So they got to work. Brick by brick, the tower grew. Higher and higher until it soared above the city, touching the sky. They built stairs in the tower to climb to the top. It was like a giant staircase to heaven. Look, they cheered. We are the ones. See what we can do with our very own hands? They were quite pleased with themselves. But God wasn't pleased with them. God could see what they were doing. They were trying to live without him. But God knew that that wouldn't make them happy or safe or anything. If they kept on like this, they would only destroy themselves. And God loved them too much to let that happen. So he stopped their plans. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, we used to have to build tall buildings or giant towers and skyscrapers as our platform to show the world just how superior we were. But nowadays, we have digital platforms that reach the entire world. 
and they're riddled with people posturing for attention, saying, look at me. Look what I've done. Look what I can do. Maybe you're not posturing. Maybe you're more like me, and you get just really mad at all the people that are doing it. Sorry to say, that's pride too. I realize those examples are a bit exaggerated and out there, and so I want to bring it home a little bit more just to kind of finish this idea of pride. And perhaps you're not sitting there finishing your final touches on your TikTok video to, to get your platform, but, but maybe you are somebody that takes everything personally and you get defensive or your feelings are the most reasonable or your desires are the most important or you always think that everyone else needs to change. Or finally, for the most part, most of your prayers are about you. This is all pride. And now since I've beat us down a bunch, I want to ease it a little bit by saying we're, we're in good company. Because even the people that spent the most time with Jesus wrestled with this. In Mark 9, this is getting to the end of, towards the end of Jesus' ministry and, and getting close to the end of his life. And he had spent a lot of time with his disciples and taught them a lot. And so you, you would have thought that they would have come a long way and, and their hearts would have be, begun to be transformed and everything. But in Mark 9, they're traveling, doing ministry, and, and they're headed to, to Capernaum. And starting in 30, verse 33, it says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he meaning Jesus, he asked them, What were you discussing along the way? And anytime Jesus asks a question like that, he's not actually wondering. He's just kind of playing them a little bit. But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me, receives not me, but he, him who sent me. Jesus begins to, to show them what it really means to be humble. And the reason he used a child in this example is they had absolutely zero credibility, zero social status. And Jesus is basically saying, hey, like, come to this level. If you come to this level, then you'll start to get what I'm, what I'm teaching here. But they didn't get it. They didn't get it. We know they didn't get it because one page later, chapter 10, we see James and John actually having the audacity to ask a, a pretty wild request of Jesus. See, James and John thought, a lot of people did, that Jesus was actually going to, at one point, all of a sudden create some type of earthly throne and, and reign on it as king. Um, that, that's the idea that they had in their mind, that that's how Jesus was going to make this whole thing end. And so they were expecting that, and so they, in, in chapter 10, they had the, the audacity to say, hey, Jesus, can, can we, like, join you in that glory when that day comes? Can, can we sit on both sides of you and kind of be, like, with you in that moment? And so Jesus says to them in verse 42, he says, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying to them, I, I hear you saying that you're wanting to be great. So if you want to be great, you need to be a servant. If you want to be first, you got to be last. And I can't, I have to imagine as he's teaching this to them, they're probably sitting there like, what the heck is he talking about, man? And sometimes I love to just like picture what that moment might have been like, and they're like, man, do you think that's why he rode that donkey last week? Yeah, I think it is. You see, Jesus had been attempting to demonstrate this all throughout his life and all throughout his ministry, and they just weren't getting it. He wanted them to understand that his kingdom was an upside-down kingdom. It wasn't going to happen the way that they were thinking. True greatness was going to come from true humility. And they weren't getting it so later, the night before Jesus went to, to be executed, he, he met with his disciples, and he had one of the most, his most famous moments with them, where he washed their feet. This is a moment where Jesus is trying to, to help them understand what he had been teaching them and what he had been trying to get, a, get through to them. He's like, I, I hear you want to be great. Let me show you what it looks like. So he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet. And there was a couple of things he was, he was accomplishing in that moment. One, he was demonstrating to them what he had come to do, and that was to serve. But he was also demonstrating what he had come to do, and that was to wash them clean of that self-glorification that was going on inside of them. But of course, they didn't fully understand that. And then later, he went to the cross, further demonstrating his ultimate humility, willingness to lay his life down for everyone else. See, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were busy building our towers out of materials gifted to us by the universal grace of God, he was busy barely breathing on the cross, taking the punishment that was supposed to be for us, because God opposes the proud, which is you and me. And he gives grace to the humble. So, so who are the humble? Well, in that moment, it was only Jesus. He was the only one who lived a righteous life, the only one who was truly humble, and therefore he was the only one who could pay the price that we deserved for our sin, for our self-glorification. But because he was perfect and he truly was humble, he could pay for it. And so he did. And then therefore, his very first call to action, after dying on the cross and raising again and now sitting at the right hand of God, is, is an extended handout saying, I'm calling you to humility. And your first call to humility is to believe in me and what I did for you. And this is huge 
So when we talk about Jesus calling us to humility, it starts here, in that moment of us realizing, like I did, <laughs> walking off that pool deck, I can't do this. I can't. And Jesus knows that. That's why he died. And so our first act of humility is falling on our knees and saying, I need you. I can't do it on my own. I need you. Jesus calls us to stop building. Stop building the towers. Stop trying to make a name for yourself. Stop trying to do it on your own. Stop striving. Your pride is causing you to be separated from God. When I was at Camp Timberline, one of the things that we would do is low ropes. And I bet a lot of you have done kind of low ropes exercises before. It's <clears throat> activities, we would do them in the woods, and there was different elements. And th the whole point of most low ropes elements is to create team building. There was one, though, that stood out that wasn't necessarily to develop team building, and it was actually, looking back on it, to shame the arrogant. It was called the blind maze. And what we would do is we would take rope and we would tie it from tree to tree through the woods and we would create a giant amoeba and eventually the rope would make it back to the beginning. And so we would start the participants yards away with blindfolds on and we would walk them up to the blind maze and we would tell them, all right, you're going to grab hold of the rope and you're going to follow it and find your way out. If you need help at any point in time, just raise your hand. So once everybody was in, we would then tie the rope behind them and sit back and laugh. <laughs> Usually after a couple times around, I would say maybe the more humble people or maybe the smarter people in the group would, would catch on and so they would just raise their hand. And the moment somebody would raise their hand, we would quietly sneak over, tell them to stay quiet. We would take their, their blindfold off and kind of show them what's going on and then tell them to come on out. Well, inevitably, the time would run out and there was still at usually at least one kid wandering around trying to do it on his own, trying to find his way out. And so finally we would call it, we would call it and say, hey, time up, take your blindfold off. And at that point, that kid would finally realize, like, there was no way out of this, man. You can't do it on your own. The only way out is to raise your hand and say, I, I need help. I need help. And I love that, because that's, that's really the first point of humility that, that Jesus calls us to. I need help. I can't do it on my own. And when we do that, when we allow ourselves to, to be humble and accept that gift that he offers to us through his work on the cross, he offers us not only forgiveness, but his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit comes then and lives within us, which actually allows us to begin to turn moments of humiliation into humility. And there's a big difference. Looking back at my humiliating lifeguard failure, I truly believe had I, had I not had the Holy Spirit within me, even though I was still... A, I was an arrogant punk and I needed to be humbled and I think God knew it and this was a perfect moment for it but I had the Holy Spirit and so I made that call 
to the director said, I can't do it. And his response to me was, it's all right. I'll help you do it. Okay. Like, I'll help you do it. I'll meet you every single day and I'll teach you how to swim. It's like, okay. Let's do it. Let's do it. You see, when we have the Holy Spirit, when we find and encounter moments of humiliation, we can allow God to work through us and, and turn that into humility. I think apart from that, when I look around and I see the world, more often than not, humiliation just turns into deeper pride, turns into fights, turns into anger, turns into depression. Through the Holy Spirit, it turns into humility and a deeper dependence on Him, and that's exactly what He wants. So kind of in closing, as Jesus calls us to humility, he calls us to first and foremost accept his gift on the cross and it takes us to humbling ourselves and saying, I need you. I'm done doing it on my own. And then through that, he gives us the Holy Spirit where we can then encounter things throughout our daily lives which might normally derail somebody, but instead of derailing us, it transforms our hearts, helping us to become more and more like him. And as we become more and more like him, I think the final thing that if we're truly following Jesus and following his call for humility, we will follow and emulate the way that he served. He served to the ultimate degree by giving his life. Giving his life as a ransom. Most of us in here aren't going to have the chance to give our life as a, <laughs> for somebody else. Maybe. Maybe you will. But we can at least leave here and go serve somebody. We can at least leave here and go help other people come to realize who God's created them to be and help other people who are struggling and help other people who are hurting and we can serve. And as we serve, I truly, truly, truly believe this and I've seen this in my own life. The more we serve, the more we come down off of our platforms and stop saying, hey, look at me, look at me, because we're just way too focused on, hey, look at you, look at you. Man, look at you. I love you. How can I serve you? How can I help you? That's what Jesus did, and that's what he calls us to. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this opportunity to gather and to worship you and to open your word and just learn how to emulate you. Uh, Lord, we pray that, that you would ultimately bring us to our knees in humility, whether it's for the very first time in accepting your gift on the cross or, or whether it's learning to continue on in a life with you as your Holy Spirit transforms encounters in this life into humbleness. And Lord, we pray that as it does that, then we would have a heart that looks around and, and just sees all the need for us to serve and love others I just pray that we would all get off platforms, that we would all stop saying, hey, look at me, and, and that we would transform our hearts and our minds into what your heart was about, which was, hey, look at you. I love you. I want to serve you. Help us to do that. It's your name we pray. Amen.